and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. When I first really started getting interested in TV criticism, back in the dark ages of 2005, 2006, I really started by looking at people who were writing out there online who were doing interesting things with the form, and you almost have to inevitably turn to the name Alan Sepinwall when that happens. He started a blog called What's Alan Watching? He just started recapping the shows he was watching, and he inadvertently turned what had been sort of a niche thing, a niche hobby from some people into something that every TV critic in America was forced to do, including myself. Uh, I spent many, many hours in the comments section of Alan's blog. If you Google me and you dig deep enough, you can go back and see all of my crazy fan theories about season five of 24. I'm really lucky to be able to call Alan a friend, and that's why I was so happy to have him on the podcast this week to talk about TV criticism and how it's changed and how it's changing and when he finds time to sleep. Alan, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Todd. Uh, I want to. I'm going to start by asking you: Do you remember? Because we've been friends for a while. Uh, do you remember our first? Well, like our first official interaction, not just me commenting like a crazy person about my 24 fan theories on your old blog, but. I remember that you were writing for Matt's blog, Matt's yes. Eller Sites, and I was reading your stuff, but I don't recall a specific, like, email or in person. What was it? This is this is actually impressive to me because I, I was sure you would have forgotten, but you had to send me the Battlestar Galactica finale in season three because I didn't have screeners yet. And Matt was like, I'll, I'll just get it from my buddy Alan. I was like, Alan Seppenwall. <laughs> um, and, uh, and and you mailed it to me. And, and like I had to send you my address and all this stuff. So at that time, I was very overwhelmed. And now you are recording on my podcast. And so. now Sci-Fi will never send me another DVD ever again. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about the changes in TV criticism and things like that. But I want to start out just by asking like, how did you get into this? Because everybody has like a different story and and they're always like crazy. They're always just some weird thing that happened. So I, I want to hear yours. All right. So my weird thing is I always kind of wanted to do this. I grew mm. up, I was watching Siskel and Ebert on TV and I said like, that's, I love that. I want to do that. I've never seen my dinner with Andre, but I love hearing him talk about it. And so right. the idea that like you could be passionate about the movies and, you know, write about it. That was my thing. And I also love TV. And when I was in college, I became obsessed with a show called NYPD Blue. Sure. Uh, groundbreaking police procedural with bad words and bare butts and things. <laughs> and I I was a college sophomore, and this is not really a show geared to college sophomores, so I didn't know anybody else at Penn Undergrad who was watching it at the time. And so I went online because we had just been given email accounts and access to, like, Unix. And so uh, I went on to Usenet. I would hang out on rec.arts.tv. Wow. And talk about my favorite shows. And one night early in the first season, someone posted, hey, can anyone tell me what happened on last week's NYPD Blue? I didn't see it. This was obviously in the days before DVR. So, and he wanted to know what had happened before the next episode aired. And I was procrastinating on, I think, a term paper. And so I said, all right, well, here's what happened. And I wrote, like, Several hundred words recapping all the different subplots. Right. And not only did the original guy thank me, but a bunch of other people said, hey, that was great. Could you do that every week? And many of them were people who had seen the episode. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, the other thing that was happening was there was a guy named Tim Lynch who was a science teacher in L.A. at the time. Now he actually works not too far from me in New Jersey. Right. But he would do recaps of every Star Trek episode, first Next Generation, then Deep Space Nine, and he would sort of break it down subplot by subplot and do both a recap and then an analysis. And I'd never seen anyone 
try to break down television that way before. And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. And that's how I modeled my NYPD Blue recaps after. And I kept doing those for a while. And I obviously wrote for the college paper. And when I was applying for a summer internship at the Star-Ledger newspaper in New Jersey, right before I graduated college, I included not only copies of things I'd written for the school paper, but printouts from the website. And that's what got me the job because this was summer of 96. This was still a novel thing. And they thought, hey, he, this kid knows something about something that's coming. So then I'd start this internship a week after graduating high school. And then good fortune number two happens, which is the paper had a very elderly TV critic who'd been covering TV since TV existed. And he was nearing retirement. And they were looking for sort of a backup for him. And he couldn't go that summer to the Television Critics Association press tour uh, because I think he was moving to a new house. And so they sent me. Yeah. Like I was three weeks out of college at that point. I didn't officially work for the paper yet. I was just an intern. And they sent me to see what would happen. And I did well enough that when I came back, they said, hey, how'd you like to be our second TV critic? When you went to that, because TCA, for those who don't know, is like a, a biannual gathering of like many, many, many TV critics you've heard of and some you haven't. And there's like hundreds of people in a room. Were you like the kid who was like trying to always like stand on the outside of the group and like being like, hey, guys, how are you? What's going on? There was a little like there were some people who hated me right away (laughs) who later I became friends with. But at the time, they're like, what is this? Because like I would I'm tall. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was less big then than I am now. But like I have a loud voice. So I would like there'd be these scrums surrounding different actors or executives. And I would always kind of push my way to the front and ask a million questions. Right. And so some people were annoyed by that. But I also like befriended a lot of the older critics were like, here, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. So for instance, back then it was considered in bad form to like, they give us all this swag, you know, hats and shirts and things with the logos of the shows on it. And someone's like, it's bad form to wear any of the swag from press tour at press tour. (laughs) Now everybody does it. Like you go into a panel and like people are all carrying the backpacks they got at the previous TCA. Right. So like I, I would just taught the lay of the land that way. And so I fit in pretty well. And somehow now I'm the old man, like, teaching the the young kids what to do. Yes, yes, including myself. Uh, but uh, when we're, when you look back on when, like, you were a kid, I think back to, like, I was watching Nick at Night. And that's how I know so much about random sitcoms from the 70s. Yes. Uh, what, what, like, what were you watching when you were a kid? What were the shows that you were obsessed with? Let's see. Well, I loved Hill Street Blues, which okay. a lot of the stuff that I loved were things that were not for my demographic, like NYPD Blue. Right. It was sort of... But also back then, there wasn't as much made for our demographic. Like, you watched what was on. You know, I've seen every Abbott and Costello movie, you know, which were made decades before I was born because every Saturday afternoon, WPIX in New York would show Abbott and Costello, and that was the thing I could watch after my cartoons were over. Right. So, you know, I watched Cheers when I was probably too young to be watching Mm -hmm. Cheers. I watched Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere. Um, I also obviously loved, you know, things where cars chased and blew up. And the A-Team was my favorite. You know, my best friend, we became best friends because we were playing A-Team together at recess at school. But I was into a lot of older things, uh, either demographically or just older, period. And I watched a lot of Nick at Night, too. So I can tell you the Patty Duke theme song, all the lyrics to that. (laughs) Identical Cousins. You've been doing this for a while now, um, and I have been amazed. I've been doing it for just around 10 years, and I've been amazed how much things have changed. But what's been the big change? Like, the obvious changes are like, oh, we have the recap. Now we don't. Kind of The recap's kind of fallen out of favor. We have, like, some of those obvious changes. What's the thing that people maybe don't notice when they think about this is how TV criticism is different? That, like, you notice, but maybe someone who doesn't actually write television criticism for a living would notice. 
how much time you got. We could fill up the rest <laughs> of this podcast just with that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, but I think the recap is still like, even if it's not as big as it used to be, it's still enough of a thing, especially with certain shows right. like your Game of Thrones right now with Fargo and Better Call Saul and Leftovers uh, and the Americans, where it's like people still care more about that than they do um, about reviews of new shows. But it's really come full circle in a way, because when I started out, the job was entirely, here's a new show, here's why you should watch it or not, here's a returning show, here's if it's if it's still good or not. Right. And then recaps became the dominant form for a long time. And now because of peak TV, there's just so many shows that the thing I hear most from people is just help me. I don't know what to watch. Right. Like Netflix has a million things. Amazon has a million things. What should I be looking at? Help me figure out what to do. And so one of the reasons I've taken a step back from recapping nearly as much as I used to is just I want more time to watch more things so I can function as some kind of gatekeeper for the people who say that they need that. You're recapping less. I'm recapping a lot less. What's what's a show that you're not recapping that you sort of, if you think in an ideal world, you could do like really great pieces Hand, on? Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. Just in terms of things that are on right now, Handmaid's Tale and American Gods, I could probably just go nuts with, but I already sort of picked out that I was going to do the other four that I mentioned. Plus, you know, I've been doing Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Brockmire, which don't take nearly as long, but like yeah. just sort of to have a couple of comedies in the mix. But you know, having this many sort of intense, dense, complicated dramas is tough. Like, game having Game of Thrones on right now would actually be easier in a way yeah. than having leftovers. A, because there's no screeners, so I would be done with it on Sunday night. I would just watch the episode and write about it. But also because Game of Thrones is much more straightforward than these other shows. Right. So the recap is more the traditional definition of recap. Mm -hmm. This happened, this happened, this happened, and this is what I think about it, as opposed to looking for deeper thematic analysis, which the show doesn't always necessarily lend itself to. Mm. The thing I found about recaps is even when I have writer's block, I can write them because yeah. it's like it's just a very straight format. Do, but do you get writer's block? Do you get points yes. where you're like, I don't know what to say? Uh, totally. Like the this week's episode of The Leftovers, which will be many weeks in the past, but yeah. the sixth, the Laurie episode of this final season was my favorite episode of The Batch we watched before the season began. It's killing me figuring out what to write about it. Yeah. Like I've had three or four aborted start and stops on it. I, I've outlined it. I still haven't written it. Americans has been one of my favorite shows every year it's on. It always takes me forever to write about that yeah. show. Um, just because trying to figure out what to say about it. But then others, it's easy. Like Better Call Saul, those those flow out of me in about a second. Wow, interesting. Do you have a theory as to why certain shows uh, do that for you? I don't know. I think sometimes it's, it's complicated because I think in a way Americans is similar to Game of Thrones in that it's a lot more straightforward than some of these other ones. It's, right. it's less sort of self-consciously arty. Uh, th there is deeper meaning, but it's still, there's a lot of text and less subtext. And so in that case, with Americans, I'm basically trying to not just do plot recap. Right. Because it's too easy to do that. And so I'm like, well, what do I want to say here? Where do I want to go with it? Um, whereas with Saul, it's, I don't know, I just feel like it's easy. It's, it's this character study of this guy. And if I'm ever struggling for an angle on an episode, I just can always go back to the Jimmy show versus Mike show thing, which is an ongoing issue with the show. Right, right. You have a book coming up about Breaking Bad, and I don't know when that's being published. But. It's, it's coming out October 10th. It's called Breaking Bad 101. It collects all of my recaps of the series 
Some of them are reprinted verbatim from when they appeared on HitFix or NJ.com or whatever. Uh, but a lot of them I've rewritten either in part or entirely. The first season I started over from scratch. The finale, I wrote a whole new thing about my feelings about the finale, a bunch of other episodes. Uh, and I've also got like interview snippets from, you know, different conversations I had with Vince Gilligan and Brian Cranston over the years. I'm working on a similar project I don't think I can announce. But um, but yeah. I Come have, on, like, Todd. You can break <laughs> it here on your own podcast. Uh, I, I don't know that all the all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So sadly, I can't talk. But like as I'm looking back at this stuff, I'm like I would never thought that this would be anything more than like it would last for maybe 48 hours. And now that you're collecting it in book form, like as you look back on the the bulk of that work, like – What's do you what sort of feelings are you having about that? Like, what is that experience like to look back on something that is in a way constructed to be slightly ephemeral? It's it's interesting. Some of them, like, I didn't want to touch. Like, I looked at it it's like, this is perfect. I don't right. need to do anything with that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of others where it's very much like this was my reaction on Sunday night or on whenever I had just watched the screener and turned around and wrote the recap. Like, this is how I was feeling then. I didn't know what was coming in the next episode. It's a lot of breathless speculation. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That kind of reaction. And so I tried as much as I could to step back and figure out, all right, well, what do I have to say about this? in a more global sense. And the book is still designed to be read as you watch. So a new, like someone who's never seen the show before could buy the book and like read each recap as they watch the series and do okay with it. So there's still a little of that, but it's definitely like about half didn't need a lot of work and half of them really needed to be looked at from scratch. I think of Breaking Bad, I think of Ozymandias, which is like this towering yes. episode of television. <laughs> is that the best TV episode that's aired since you started being a professional critic? Definitely the best episode of TV drama. I would have to think long and hard what the best comedy episode is and whether it's equivalent to that. And, you know, I I almost died the day that Ozymandias aired. My appendix burst. Oh, no. Uh, I, was, uh, I was having stomach pain the night before, and I went to the emergency room, and they said, oh, your appendix is about to burst. You need to have surgery. Stay here. And they kept me waiting about 12 hours. And by God. the time they got me on the table, the appendix burst. So I was in the hospital for about two weeks, including that night. So I'm there in the hospital room with my wife, my mom, my stepfather, mm-hmm. and I've got like painkiller IV and an antibiotic IV, and I'm just loopy as hell, and I'm watching Ozymandias with my laptop out attempting to take notes and write something about it, which in a way is kind of the ideal way to experience <laughs> Ozymandias, because it's like, did that didn't really happen, did it? No, that's just the drugs. There's no way they would actually, wait, they did that? <laughs> By the way, the best episode of TV comedy is Arrested Development's Peer Pressure. I'm glad to have answered that for you. Um, that's the that's why you always leave a note episode, which is <laughs> that's good. That's good. Although, good grief, I think. Okay. Hmm. All right. Okay. So, one of the things that I love about TV that I find harder and harder to do is like, uh, for a recent example, I think the CBS show Mom took a long time to find its voice, but once yeah. it did, I really liked it. I have less time to watch shows that are like not quite there, but I can tell there's something there now. How do you keep an eye on stuff that's like, you know, there's something there, but also you have 500 other things to watch? It's very hard. Like there's a lot of shows, you know, my wife calls it hope watching. It's like, it's like you said, it's not quite there yet, but I see something. Yeah. And sometimes the hope watching pays off. Like Parks and Rec is maybe the best example of that. Like first season's not that good and then it becomes one of the great comedies of all time. But then you only got to watch six episodes of it, and that debuted in a less crowded era. But what's interesting sometimes is I find, like, 
I like recapping those shows that aren't quite there yet more than I like writing about the, this is a great show because at a certain point, like what, what are you going to say that's new? Sure. Whereas like here you can write about, well, they did this right, but maybe do more of that. Like the, watching them calibrate it can be more fun. I don't have as much time to do it as I used to, but like I did the whole first season of Preacher, which is a show that I still don't think is quite there, but I probably will do the second just to sort of chronicle that journey. And also because it's on in the summer and there's slightly less stuff for me to have to worry about. Yeah, it's crazy how summer is still, even though there's a lot of TV, there's like less demanding TV in the summer, like stuff that I watch, you know, mostly for fun. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's persisted, I guess? I think it because it's still like people are on vacation. Pe sure. Kids are out of school. People are going places. So even though it's uh, an on-demand, non-linear viewing culture for a lot of people, there's still others where you got to worry, like, will enough people be in the house on this night to watch it to make it worth it? And still, we're going to have Game of Thrones, which is HBO's big gun. Oh, yeah. And, and like, they, <laughs> they could have saved that for the fall because yeah. once the Emmy eligibility went out the window, they could have done whatever they wanted with it. They decided they're going to air that in the summer. So some people are still assuming that they can get eyeballs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing, speaking of summer TV, I'm always reminded of kind of when Survivor and American Idol launched there. Or in the early days of your blog, you did some American Idol coverage. I did, it, and actually. I did Survivor coverage too. Oh, really? Uh, do you still watch a lot of reality? I watch no reality now. You don't even watch Survivor anymore? Nope. And okay. it's it's a couple things. One, it because I have to do triage in, through Peak TV, and I got to figure out like what's most valuable to me professionally. And what I found when I did those Idol and Survivor recaps was there was just much less interest in people hearing my opinion on those shows than there were on much lower rated shows. Because right. it's like, you can find anybody to talk about American Idol. We want to hear Alan Sepinwall talk about, you know, Terriers. <laughs> yeah. Who, well, who's your favorite American Idol contestant? Who's uh, number one? It's Kelly Clarkson. Okay. Like, I, I, I want yeah. to get cute and, like, name Bo Bice or some, like, <laughs> seventh place finisher, you know. I'm sure I'm sure our friend Dan Feinberg's favorite contestant is Catherine McPhee, but it's it's Kelly Clarkson. Kelly Clarkson's great. Um we talked a lot about peak TV already. Yeah. Uh, and so I kind of want to lean into that, which is, do you think it's been a net good for the industry and for yourself? Mostly it's been good for both the business and me because okay. it like, I never run out of things to write about. There were definitely times, you know, when I had a newspaper column in the late nineties, early two thousands, where it's like, I don't know what I'm covering today. I don't know what I'm covering this week, this month. Now there's never a lack of things to do. Uh, which is great and it's exciting and there's so much more interest in TV now. Like I remember when I started doing this and I would tell people what I did for a living, they would say, oh, really? Like, do you write about movies too? And I would say no. And they would seem disappointed and almost like they felt sorry for me <laughs> that I had to write about TV. And now it's like I say I write about TV and they're instantly list off six or seven shows that they love that they want to talk about or they want to know the next big thing they should be seeing. So there's a lot more like consumer interest in television Overall, so that's been good for me, and I think it's been good for the business because it's sort of it's driving, like each time a new outlet gets into this, right? At least temporarily, it's the wild west, and there's no rules, and they can do whatever they want, and that's when you tend to get the periods of greatest innovation and the most excited shows, and then that territory gets settled and codified, and you got to move on somewhere else. But it's also like there's not enough eyeballs for things, you know. WGN just announced they're basically getting out of this business. Underground is a really good show yeah. that I'm also at least three episodes behind on because Peak TV. That's another one that in an ideal world I would probably be recapping. But they made this really good show. They made Manhattan, which was very good too. They've made some other pretty good shows, and they couldn't make money on it. And yeah. 
you know, Brava or A&E is getting out of this business for the most part. And they just did Bates Motel, which was very good. And, you know, MTV canceled Sweet Vicious. Like, it seems the bubble's not bursting. I don't even know if it's collapsing. It's maybe shrinking a tiny bit. But you're starting to see at least a few places that realize that they just can't make the math work. Well, every time a cable outlet gets out of scripted, like Netflix greenlights six oh, more shows. God. <laughs> it's like I love Netflix, and Netflix is also the bane of my existence. <laughs> talk talk about that. Tell me a little bit about that dichotomy, that sort of that, that love-hate relationship. All right, well— there's, there's a few things going on. One is sort of this, there's like a cult-like mentality both within and without Netflix. Like, we are Netflix. We are awesome. Yeah. Whatever we do is inherently great. And the way we do things is inherently great. And there are people who it's like, I only have a Netflix subscription. Therefore, I only care about things that are on Netflix. Therefore, anything Netflix does is good by me. Right. And they do some great shows. Master of None is wonderful. Orange the New Black is great. You know, the, the Crown, which is about a subject I couldn't care less about, was really, really good. They've done a lot of excellent shows. They've also done a lot of shows that are way too many episodes, sag deeply in the middle. And they also have just some outright bad shows like House of Cards that, because they're on Netflix and have a couple of very famous stars, get held up in much higher esteem than they would if they were airing on, like, Showtime. Right, right. Yeah, and the thing I always, the thing that you wrote about Netflix, I think a year ago, that it, it was so smart is they don't do episodes at all. And that increasingly is you get to the middle of one of their shows and, like, episodes yeah. four through about ten are just, like, interchangeable. Yes. We're going through random plot complications. Yes. Do you think Netflix has made a drama series that like genuinely avoids that problem. I do, but I want to hear if you... Well, I think that's one of the reasons I like The Crown is The Crown had episodic right. structure. It's, sure. ro it's royal crisis of the week. Yeah. Um, so that helps depending on how you define Orange is the New Black. They have some structure because they have the flashbacks every episode. And I don't even think the flashbacks are necessarily good or useful to the show overall anymore, but at least it helps differentiate. This is the episode, you know, where we go home with... Um, I, I can't... I'm blanking on all the character <laughs> names of the inmates at this yeah, point. Yeah, this, this is the, yeah, the we're, we're going home, we're going home yeah. with Flocka. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So that helps a little bit. But yeah, you generally find more differentiation among their half hours, like Master of None, like BoJack, like Kimmy Schmidt. Give me just sort of a summary of your argument in favor of episodes as opposed to seasons. Okay. If you are David Simon right. or someone who has worked for David Simon, <laughs> you can maybe get away with doing – are like 13 episodes or 10 hours is our unit of storytelling measurement. Sure. And you need to watch the whole season in order to fully appreciate it. Almost nobody else has successfully done it. Even the shows that I like that do it always sag in the middle. Like Boardwalk Empire, they're always like episodes, you know, four through nine. Just what is going on? Get to the point. Right. And then you it does the turn for the last three or four episodes. And those were always great and made me ha feel happy about the season as a whole. But it just drags a lot in the middle. Episodes are important. Like, you think back on Mad Men, you think back on Breaking Bad, which is a pretty serialized show. You're still thinking about Breaking Bad episodes. You're talking about Ozymandias. Right. You're talking about Four Days Out, which is the one where the RV breaks down in the desert. You're talking about Fly. You know, some people love it, some people hate it. But, like, you're remembering specific episodes with specific stories. One minute, that's the episode where the cousins come for, for Hank. Right. And I think that has value both in the moment and then later on when you're looking back. Other than The Wire, I can't think of one of these, like, 13-hour movie shows or 13-hour novel shows that I really am interested at all in ever going back to revisit.
in both my job at Vox and my previous job at the AV Club, I was always looking for great writers, great editors, great people to work with. And that can be hard to find. That can be something where you you put a job up and hundreds upon hundreds of people apply and you're looking for just the right one and it can feel like a needle in a haystack. Well, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails. There's no calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, absolutely free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. I think of The Wire as also having kind of an episodic structure where, like, I think about that pilot, just for example, and it's like Jimmy McNulty needs to get the judge to do this for him. Yeah. And, like, it's it's a bigger story, but every episode there's a tiny little thing they have to do to, like, move forward. And I always am, am fascinated by the way that that – and you compare it to, like, Treme, which is another David Simon show yeah. I like a lot, where that is not the case no, at all. No, Treme is <laughs> just here – here's the next hour of stuff. <laughs> and I love Treme too, but, like, you've got to – you got to have a lot of patience with that show. Yeah. When you talk about episodes, I do think back on like these shows, and you're right that my favorites have these favorite hours of TV. I think what we switched to now is this thing where like with Game of Thrones where it's like, oh, do you remember that scene where Tyrion did this? Yes. We're in this moment-based format, and I think someone like Ryan Murphy is kind of someone who really thrives in that environment where he has these shows that are like – Love them or hate them, there's a big moment in every episode that you want to talk about. How do you kind of feel about that movement to that sort of storytelling? It's It can be frustrating because I do like – I like episodes. I like sort of cohesion and unity. And that's always been one of my beefs with Game of Thrones. Some of these Netflix shows don't have enough story to fit into the bag. Game of Thrones has too much story to fit into the bag. And so that's why I think they do the whole tour guide approach, you know? Right. You know, now we're in Dorne. Now we're over in King's Landing. Now we're up by the wall. And, you know, it's just this five minutes here, five minutes there. And that's why I tend to prefer the episodes that are either only in one location or in one location for a good chunk of the episode. Sure. And when Game of Thrones is at its best, it's like it's up there with the best that TV has to offer right now. But it's much more of a sporadic thing. And there's just a lot of like, here's this person on horseback going from place to place. Or, you know, here's the setup of this. And here's Theon being tortured for a whole year. You can think of these cool moments and that sort of elevates the show overall. But I don't know that it's a great overall show. Certainly in terms of ratings, that show and The Walking Dead are kind of the definitive dramas of our era. Yes. In terms of what people are watching and talking about. And, and I mean, outside of like NCIS and stuff. But yes. What do you think it is about those shows that, that made them catch on in a way that others just haven't? Even other shows in those genres. There, there's obviously the spectacle of it. Um, you know, zombies, I think there's just there's no moral ambiguity to zombies. And obviously there's moral ambiguity to the human interactions on the, right. on that show. But initially people get into it. It's a survival story. Rick is trying to survive, you know, protect his family from being killed by zombies. And there's no angst. There's no concern about, oh, we've shot another zombie in the head. We've shot another zombie in the head. That's just what you have to do to survive. And right. it has since gone into other territory. And I've, I stopped watching it a couple of years ago. 
But it starts off in a place that's much more black and white than a lot of the golden age of TV drama shows were. And so it's it's easier to see why that became a much bigger hit than, you know, Breaking Bad or Sopranos. Right, right. And Game of Thrones, it, it's got spectacle and it's it has these big moments and you want to come in the next day and talk about, oh my God, the dragons or, you know, oh my God, the, here's the thing that Tyrion did or whatever. Right, right. Who do you think should sit on the Iron Throne at the end of Game of Thrones? <laughs> It's funny. Feinberg has never let me forget the fact that I wrote my initial review of the series, having not read the books and having right. seen like four episodes, saying like, clearly, like Ned Stark should be the king of Westeros. <laughs> He's the only one who's qualified. And, you know, yeah, Ned Ned turned out to be a real idiot. Uh, I don't know who should. Um, I would like to see Tyrion make it to the end, and it would yeah. be kind of neat to see him on the throne, but I, I don't imagine that's going to happen. I assume you know, Ice and Fire are going to come together and Daenerys and Jon Snow will get married and not even realize that they're related or yeah. it doesn't matter because the Targaryens inbreed and that'll be that. I think they need to tear down the monarchy and <laughs> institute a constitutional republic uh, <laughs> and that will be the action of the entire final season is writing the constitution of the Seven Kings. You're, you're, you're like that uh, that guy from the early, the Holy Grail who keeps talking about an autonomous collective. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on some, some TV controversies because you, you're you here with the book, uh, TV the Book, came out last year, which yes. covers all of TV history. There hasn't been a really strong TV canon, and I guess one of the, the missions of that book is to start creating one. Why do you think it's so hard to create a TV canon as opposed to like a movie canon or a literary canon? Because there's just so much more to see. Like mm -hmm. you could go and see like the top 100 AFI films. Mm -hmm. You could do that over the period of a few months and you'd see them all. The, the top 100 shows that we did in TV, the book, Matt and I, like, I'm not sure either of us has seen even every episode of all of those shows. Right. But we've seen a lot of them. But, like, it's, you've got to watch so much raw material to be able to judge this against that, uh, that it, it becomes very different. There's very few people who can do it and can do it properly. I'm not even sure that we are 100% qualified to, like, be attempting it. We were just the best people we knew to do it. Right. What's a classic show that you've seen that you know you liked or you've seen, but you've seen like less than 10% of? Mary Tyler Moore, I think. Mm. Like I've seen a handful of Mary Tyler Moore's. I've seen Chuckles. I've seen the pilot. I've seen a few others. It's wonderfully crafted. It just, it was never on in reruns at a time when I was growing up that was like convenient for me to watch it. And then I've just sort of moved on to other things. And, you know, I think a lot of it's streaming on Hulu, but not all of it. And so that one just you right. know, went by. Uh, I said I was going to have you weigh in on on TV controversies, and then got distracted by my own thoughts. So plug I'm, away, I'm let's gonna... plug away. Buy my book. Buy my book. <laughs> buy his yes. Buy his book. Uh, so let's go back to to that idea. Tell me your feelings. You've had like feelings on this over the years that I think have run counter to many of your your fans. Tell me about your feelings on the Lost finale. We're now like, are we? We're seven years out from it, I think. Uh, the Lost finale aired like a couple weeks into when I started at HitFix in 2010. Yeah. And my son was born right before I started to hit fix, and he's seven. So yeah, it's been it's been seven years. Wow. Um, and now I'm at Uproxx. So I was gonna say it was three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old. I I like more of it than I don't. There are problems with it. And I think a lot of the problems are more final season problems than necessarily problems with that episode. Like I don't know that the sideways universe was a good idea. Right. And a good sort of use of the amount of time it got over the course of that year. But the individual sideways universe moments in the finale are some of my favorite lost bits ever. Sawyer and Juliet at the vending machine, and they they touch hands and they remember who they are, and they hug, and he says, I gotcha. 
you know, I, I'm almost crying just thinking about it, much right. less watching it. And so many of the big action scenes are, are very good. And obviously, a lot of it is tied to the the golden pool of light and pulling the cork and putting the cork back in. And that's dumb. But that's dumb from earlier in that season. I think the, the end itself, I'm, maybe it is more moment-based than episode-based, which we've been talking about before. But the moments are so good. Yeah, I I rewatched recently on YouTube the scene where Jack and Locke run toward each other, and then like, oh, yes. the commercial break is one of them flying through the air. Is like, yeah, yes, it's still great. Uh, to keep on the finale kick, the Sopranos finale, obviously, uh, is still discussed to this day. I'm not going to ask you if Tony Soprano's alive or dead because oh, he's, he's clearly dead. Everyone has told me he's clearly <laughs> dead. He must he must be dead. There's no possible way he could not be dead. So. You know what? I'm conceding he's dead. That's fine. <laughs> You've won, people. I hope you're happy. But I'm thinking about, uh, we have, as we were recording this, we're just before Twin Peaks returning. Yes. Twin Peaks is a show that influenced The Sopranos. Twin Peaks is a deeply ambiguous show, yet there is this impulse to solve it. Like, there's an impulse to solve the finale of The Sopranos. What do you think, do you feel that within yourself to, like, figure out exactly what happened? And what do you think drives that? Because I, I love ambiguity. No, but, I like ambiguity, yeah. too. And I feel like I've I've frankly thought too much about what happens in the last scene of The Sopranos, more than I would yeah. like to. Yeah. Because I would like it to re- remain this ambiguous thing. And maybe he lives, maybe he dies. You know, I think it's ultimately about the idea that life can be— Life can be snatched up from you at any moment and you never expect it. And so maybe he dies in that moment and maybe he doesn't, but we don't know. And we're never going to know the moment when death comes for us unless under very specific circumstances. But do you like that sort of, I guess, Westworld, Mr. Robot, sort of that fan theorizing aspect that's taken over Uh, uh, comment sections? I really don't. And I've been a nerd who's tried to solve stuff myself, so I can't Mm -hmm. hate on it too much. But especially with shows that are airing weekly, it's just very hard because, A— Doing the job I do, I'm exposed to every fan theory, whether I want to be or not. Right. So the shows are solved for me long before the the show solves itself. Right. So, like, I knew who Mr. Robot was. I knew who Bernard on Westworld was, et cetera, well before the show turned over those cards. I remember when you solved the Edward James almost season of Dexter for me. In, like, and, episode two. Yeah. Yes, and you ruined that whole season for everyone. Not that it was good. It deserved to be ruined, but it was sort of like— once you hear that, you can't unhear it, and it just affects everything. Yeah. But, like, just these, this idea of a mystery-based show where the mystery is everything is really frustrating because, A, nothing stays a mystery, and so things get solved ahead of time. And, B, even if it doesn't, it just feels kind of empty. That's one of the reasons I'm really drawn to Lost, or The Leftovers, rather, which has tons of mysteries, some of which they may explain by the time of the finale, which I think will have aired before this uh, yeah. podcast <laughs> thing goes up. Many of which won't, and I won't mind if they do because I'm so invested in the characters and the tone and the world that that, like, they could solve nothing or they could explain things very unsatisfyingly, and it will not, it one iota affect my overall opinion of the show. I think we're going to find out that the people who are in The Great Departure went to that cornfield from Field of Dreams. Like, I think <laughs> that's going to be the finale. It's going to be great. So Nora Durst and Cousin Larry are going to play some baseball together? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really unearned, but we'll love it. We'll all love it. Um, but yeah, uh, thinking back to TV twists, like I think about like The Good Place had a great twist, but that's because I didn't, I wasn't looking for it. And my commenters, at least a couple of them had speculated about exactly that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, like, is there a way to do a TV twist in this era? You, you mentioned Mr. Robot, and I think that show had a great twist, and it's because they front-loaded the Mr. Robot's not real. Like, they had that that thing there that you were distracted by, so they were able to— They were able to, to do Darlene. Yeah, yes. they were able to do Darlene. Do you think there is still a way to do a TV twist, or is it just, like— Impossible. You can do it, but you either have to do a ton of misdirection, mm-hmm. you know, 
Or you have to do the exact opposite, which is you have to have no clues whatsoever to it, which then leaves people feeling cheated too. Yeah. People are conditioned to it now, and for things that are released weekly, like, there's just too many people who are going to go on Twitter, go on Reddit, go whatever, and that's not the entirety of the audience, but it's enough of it that it can then filter down to other places, and so people who never are on TV, social media, still wind up hearing about it. Kind of another controversy that's sprung up over the last few years is, like, should you consider a show by the season or the episode. Like David Simon has said, oh, we only want to have reviews of the full season. What's your sort of your attitude on that? It varies. I think some shows, like, you got to wait till the end. You know, Kimmy Schmidt is going to debut a couple days after we record this, season three. I've seen half the episodes. They're they're pretty good. They have a lot of good jokes, but they're not great. And I know in the case of Kimmy Schmidt, that's one where I need to see the whole year because the big stuff tends to happen in the last few episodes, and that makes me rethink everything. And there's enough funny jokes along the way that it doesn't feel like a slog like a lot of other Netflix things. But, like, you're still consuming TV one episode at a time. Even if you're doing a binge over a weekend, it's still, now I'm watching this hour of House of Cards, now I'm watching that hour of House of Cards. If the individual hours aren't good, they're not good. And that's just the way it is. Mm. But, like, you can certainly still step back. And The Wire, like, probably you should be judged by a season or even by the series, but you can still point to certain episodes as, this is an extraordinary episode of the show. This was not a fun episode of the show, but it's necessary to get the pieces into place for what the the task force is going to do, et cetera. We can agree that TV revivals are terrible. Um, Yes. (laughs) We were talking about this in the car on the way here. Uh, Most TV revivals are useless. Even the good ones are just kind of like, like the Gilmore Girls one is, is pretty good, but you're like, inessential in some ways. And it made me hate Rory. So in that way, it was probably a mistake. (laughs) But what's a show that you, even if it was terrible, you would love to see revived? Terriers. Terriers? Terriers is pretty much the only one, like, and even that I think probably wouldn't be quite the same. It's just, like, TV's alchemy. Shows are made at a certain moment in the lives of the people making them, of the characters on the show, and of the audience watching it. And if you change any one of those things, let alone all three of them, something's going to be off. And Mm. so Rory Gilmore, as a 32-year-old woman, behaving pretty much the way she did when she was 16, you're going to find that a lot more annoying. Yeah. You know, plus you're older and you might sympathize. Like, I find myself sympathizing a lot more with Emily this time around than I did back when it originally aired. What is a show that you loved at the time that maybe for you, you just can't, it it was at that time and it just hasn't lasted for you. I think a lot, I love the West Wing at the time. And now when I watch it, I'm kind of irritated by it. (laughs) Well, that's a case also where, like, the later shows he did yeah. kind of soiled the earth for the West Wing because Aaron Sorkin, like, he's got a, he's got some ticks. Yeah. And some of those were already apparent when he jumped from Sports Night to the West Wing. So there's, like, a, we can't find our talent. Our talent is hidden somewhere in the building. Yeah. Writer's block subplot on both those shows. But then, like, when you watch Studio 16, when you watch The Newsroom, and then you go back and you watch The West Wing, it's like, oh, God, they're mansplaining to CJ again. And <laughs> it's, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I think TV TV certainly has evolved beyond a lot of what Sorkin was doing that. And The West Wing's a great show, and it's in our top 100 in TV, the book, and everything. And I, I wouldn't try to diminish it. But, like, I think certain other shows from that era have aged a lot better than it has. What's a type of show? I really miss multi-camera sitcoms. Yeah, so me too. Like the live studio and audience sitcom. What's a type of show you wish there was just a really, like, do you wish there was, like, a really great detective show? Or, like, what's that, a type pri- of show? I was going to say, pri- I want a good private eye show. And it, yeah. do- it doesn't have to be terrorist. Just, like, a gumshoe operating out of an office, feet up on the desk, you know, struggling yeah. to make ends meet, but going out working cases with really snappy writing and a really charming actor or actress playing the private eye. I would be all over that. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to head into the the end of the show here, but I want to ask you, you mentioned early that you loved watching TV, you loved watching movies. A lot of people I know who became TV critics wanted to be movie critics. Yes. And then ended up liking being TV critics. Was that you or did you just always want to be a TV critic? No, I thought I was going to be a movie critic. I thought <laughs> like I was going to be Ebert or Siskel or something like that. And that's mainly what I did at the college paper, for instance. But even growing up, like I love TV and I love things like Hill Street Blues where it's like you see – you know, Frank Ferrillo or Norman Bunce or J.D. LaRue, like, evolve and change over the run of that show. And you see that, like, that's something that TV can do that a movie can't. You can watch seven years of this character growing and changing. Mm -hmm. And that was really interesting. And, there, like, if you go back and you look at Hill Street Blues now, it's dated in a lot of ways. It's flawed in a lot of ways. But it's still, like, those character arcs are there and they're great. Mm -hmm. So I could sort of recognize that anyway. And I was definitely a fan of a certain kind of thing, and that's why I wound up recapping NYPD Blue, but I still didn't necessarily expect that to lead to a career in TV. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time about six times in a row, including working at the newspaper that Tony Soprano had at the end of his driveway, which opened up many, many doors for me. When you look at your life, you obviously, there's a lot of TV, there's a lot of TV to watch, a lot of TV to write about, but you also have, you know, you have a family, you have friendships, you probably like doing things other than watching TV at times. How do you balance out the parts of your life that aren't watching 13 hours of this week's Netflix show? It's a challenge. It is. Like, I'm, there's always, like, the sense when I'm not working that there's some show I should be watching right mm -hmm. now or there's something I could be recapping. You know, it's like a, my son's doing Little League and I love going to watch him play. But there's a sense like maybe I should just whip out the old phone and stream something right now. But that like I don't do it because I want to watch my son play baseball. Yeah. Um, but it, it's hard. You know, we're, we're talking about summer vacations at the moment. And I'm thinking, well, Game of Thrones comes back on July 16th. Even if I'm on vacation, I'm going to need to be somewhere where I can watch HBO that Sunday night. And so mm. it's like there, there's never a great time to go anywhere. There's never a great time to schedule anything because TV is all the time now. And it's all-consuming, and it's been very good for me professionally, and it's allowed me to build a life that I'm very happy with overall. So I've got no complaints in a global sense. It's just you got to juggle a lot. People who listen to the podcast know I ask some of the same questions of my guests every week. Uh, I'm going to change them up a little bit because you're not uh, – you're working as a critic, so it, it, you share your opinions on everything. So the first one I'm going to change up a little bit, which is what is the last non-TV work of pop culture you consumed, and what did you think of it? Uh, I read Lincoln and the Bardo, mm. um, actually on the recommendation of a TV writer friend of mine, but it yeah. was still, you know, non-TV. I liked it a lot. It took me sort of a little while to, to get into it because there's the style of the language being used is very colloquial to the 19th century. But by the end of it, it's just, I found it stunning. Was it recommended to you by David Milch? It was so. not recommended by David Milch. <laughs> uh, tell me the story of your worst uh, pop culture outing, whether it's a bad movie date or uh, you went to a concert and friends hated it, something like that. Uh <laughs> One year, like, someone at CBS was nice enough to get me tickets to the Grammys. And so I took my wife. We flew out to L.A. Uh, we left our baby daughter home with, with a grandma. And we went to L.A. And we were waiting online to get into whatever arena it was. I think it was the convention center to watch the show. And my wife looks up at a sign and she says, like, what, what's Westwood One? And this was somewhere in the mid-O's. Yeah. And I just, for whatever reason, I guess I was just cranky because we were waiting online I got super condescending and obnoxious. I said, what, honey, you mean Kanye West? <laughs> and she points up, 
no, Westwood One. And it's like a sign right above the entrance yeah. to the arena. And like she has never, ever let me forget <laughs> this. And it comes up all the time, anytime we go anywhere and probably deservingly so. When I came back from a trip once, my wife and I had a lengthy argument about whether Calvin and Hobbes or Peanuts was the greater comic strip that like nearly ended our relationship. This is when <laughs> we were dating. Um, so I, I know what that's like. Who is the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met? <sighs> Ebert. Mm. I mean, we we traded emails a couple of times right before he died, uh, which was really kind of a special thing because he's the reason I got into this. But I never met him in person, and then he was ailing towards the end, and so I never got the chance to. But just reading his stuff, watching the show, looking at the way he approached things, so it's like he never looked at a thing for what he wished it was. He looked at, for the, at the thing for what it was, and that's what I try to do. Like, if, it, if I'm watching just like a fluffy superhero show, is it a good fluffy superhero show? Yeah. If I'm watching something that's aspiring to more, is it a good version of that? If this thing is just completely trashy, is it fun trash? Yeah. And finally, since we're in the middle of upfront season and networks are airing trailers for their new pilots, uh, what are you looking forward to? Uh, you I'm, can say the Magician Cop show. <laughs> the Magician Cop show is literally the only upfront trailer I watched <laughs> entirely because the guy I do a podcast with called TV Avalanche is obsessed with the Magician <laughs> FBI show. And I think he wouldn't have spoken to me on the next episode if I hadn't watched the trailer. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I'm Right now, there's just so much airing right now in this period from April to May. It's the busiest time I think I've ever had professionally. Like, I'm just focused on getting through it, and I'm loving doing it. I'm loving writing about Leftovers and these other shows every week, but I can't really look ahead much beyond that. You know, I'll be excited when Game of Thrones is back, when Orange is the New Black is back. I'll be very excited when the Deuce premieres in the fall because it's the new David Simon show with James Franco playing dual roles. Two as, James Francos. Yes, as twins in the 70s porn industry. I, I will be all over that then. <laughs> Alan, thank you very much for stopping by. Always a pleasure, Todd. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. I am going to read you some closing credits because that's what I do every week. Fox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer and recording engineer for this episode is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded this week's episode at the wonderful podcast studio at the Vox Media New York offices, and our editor is Peter Leonard. I'll be back next week with someone else from the world of arts and entertainment, someone who I think is interesting. But until then, remember, it's only peak TV if you let it overwhelm you. Until then, it's just TV. Yay!